All right, ready, set, go. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that was golden. I, love I it. like simplicity and I like it to be very couples. clean. All acted very simple. The matching couples, oh my lord, I hate the matching couples. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm attracted to normal life. Right, but that's not accurate. You have your taste. Those are all things that most of us could really improve on. It's gonna, it's gonna vary wildly, if anyone listens to us. That's what I call interesting. No real substance? That's super interesting. Fascinating almost. Welcome to While We're on the Subject, where we talk about what we talk about. Now here's the show. Hi, Mike. Hey, John. So uh, we're starting a podcast here. Yeah, that is exactly what we are doing. Yes. So just <laughs> this is gonna be. This is gonna yeah. Be oh no, it's gonna great. be terrible. I'm, I'm, but yeah. But you're gonna love it, people. I swear to God. Or, or if you don't believe in God, I yeah. swear to like I don't know, Carl Sagan. Okay. I don't know yeah, what people sure. believe in, dude. Yes. Buddha. Clearly, Carl Sagan. That's that's the go-to. So we're starting a podcast. Yes. Why are you starting a podcast? What, what's your thinking in this? 60% because you asked me, and 40% because I want to share things with people. I want to learn things and tell other people about the things I've learned and why it matters. How about you? <laughs> yeah, so obviously I did invite you to join me in this. So I've gotten really into podcasts. I really like podcasts. Um, I've been generally experimenting with different forms of media creation over the last year or so. And there are a lot of interesting things that I've learned. And I mean, I've been moving around to a bunch of different countries. And so I get exposed to a lot of ideas. Right. And these are ideas that I don't really hear anyone share or discuss. And I get into these conversations with friends back home or friends really anywhere I go. Right. And most people don't think about a lot of these ideas or a lot of this information. And you discuss things in a very interesting way. You have an interesting way of approaching an interesting perspective on a lot of the things we talk about and the things we think about. Thank you. Of course, yeah. It's very true. I, and so I think sharing a lot of this information, a lot of these ideas, help people sift through some of this stuff to deal with a changing world and, and to have a better grasp of the diversity out there in the world, about the distinctions between different countries, giving a little bit of context in terms of history or how things are changing. or Psychology of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly, yeah, psychology and behavioral analysis. <laughs> Um, that's that's it. all that's all good stuff to discuss, and so uh, yeah, I just kind of want to take a lot of these different things that we're interested in and share our perspectives on them and look at them perhaps in a less traditional way. So, Mike, why don't you tell uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Where you live? Where you from? What are you doing? Let's see. I am from Long Beach, California, the fifth best yeah. city in the state. And what do I do? What am I doing? I am <laughs> working, going to school, community college, because I am a high school dropout. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, drop out of high school, go to community college, way better than a university. Just, you wouldn't believe it. Yeah, like a boss. Yeah. It's, a, it's the affordable option, right? Yeah, yeah way better. Yeah. So much cheaper. Education's almost the same, not really. Or so I'm told. You'll see at some point. Yeah. Working, working a job, renting cars, which is going to end soon. So I'm excited for future prospects after that. I'm, I'm not having a lot of interesting stuff going. I am a wannabe writer. I am writing short stories. I'm trying to do that. Well, I think the, the, important, the important thing here is what do you think about? What are your, what are your interests? I, I like what makes people tick. That is one of those. Sure. It's one of the things I'm, you know, interested in about. Why societies behave the way they do. Why they make the decisions they make. Why they feel the feelings they feel. Why cultures develop differently. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's just like a endless topic. I don't I don't even I don't even know where to go with that. I just No, it it's one of those things I It really I is. Love talking about. And this is this is this is one of the keys of, uh, to why I am so interested in history, right? Because history informs us about why people feel the way they do today and why the world is structured in the way that it is today. And and that is what you just said about why people do the things they do and why they feel the way they feel. Those two things are the core of what interests is interesting about the world and is interesting to try to understand. Yeah, sociology is one of my favorite topics. I like learning about that, that distinction between the personal and the hmm. societal self as yeah. as it were, I guess. And you know, how different we are privately <laughs> sure. and publicly. Right? And yeah, I mean that's a great thing about history. Like they it informs us so much about 
why things are the way they are now, which yeah, is pretty nifty. In terms of what we might talk about on here, obviously we have uh, relatively diverse interests, but you know I've been very focused in the last year on learning and developing and figuring out new skills, and so figuring out how and why other people do the things they do, like we were just talking about, and figuring out how to interface with them in a productive way and to develop myself in such a way that I can provide value to other people and you know, manage my time more effectively, learn things more efficiently, and just generally become a stronger person in, in every area. Those are all things that I think most of us could really improve on and most of us could really benefit from thinking through in a more systematic and thorough way. And so, yeah, I think just, just you know, delving into these things and breaking them down into, you know, interesting smaller bits will be a really interesting thing, yeah. This is gonna, it's gonna vary wildly. I think that's, that's probably one of the most exciting things about this. We are gonna talk about a lot of stuff that, Absolutely. that may not seem relevant to this yeah. current discussion we're having, but I mean, it's all relevant. I mean, obviously, hopefully it will be. Yeah, we we'll we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully we have uh, yeah we, yeah, if we have even strike a chord with some people. Yeah. Um, if anyone listens at all. Oh, they will. Have, have no fear, my friend. So essentially, we will be sending out a new episode every Monday. That is the plan, mm-hmm. and hopefully we'll uh, maintain this and we'll figure it out as we go. Mm-hmm. And you know, obviously, all of you send us your feedback on kinds of things you might want to hear us talk about and we will delve into those subjects and we'll give you our thoughts and our analysis of those different issues absolutely because we want to engage all of you as much as possible so mike you want to move on to the main topic of the day where are you talking from john what yeah i'm here in long beach oh right we totally didn't get into what are you doing tell us a little bit about yourself besides your interests, sir yeah so my yeah my name is jonathan roberts um, I'm also from Long Beach, but I currently live in Beijing. I teach uh, businessmen English here. And before this, I lived in Korea for a year. And before that, I lived in Long Beach. And generally, I, you know, I, I have been working in a lot of different countries. I went to school in France for a while. I've been very interested in the inter- in international relations and international politics and economics for a long time. And you know, I've been using this opportunity in different countries to try to hoover up as much information as possible about these different places and these different peoples and their perspectives and all of that, um, which actually relates very closely to what our main topic of the day is. We wanted to talk about an aspect of China and Chinese culture and Chinese history that doesn't normally get discussed and I don't think most Americans truly appreciate exists. And so, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about China today. That we are. So, Mike, go ahead and give me a, your basic idea of what you would think of China as when you were maybe a teenager or in your early 20s. Like, what did you, what did you think of China, generally? If I had to say honestly, I would always think, oh, there's Hong Kong, which is like British China, and then the, the rest of the China, just a big old massive land that was or is some kind of type of communist regime and before that they had all sorts of kingdoms constantly fighting over power i didn't care about china i'll be honest that's that's about all i got i think that's the general impression like people now care about china in the context of them being a large powerful economy mm-hmm. right but the general view of people in the us is that china is this huge monolith right it's this thing that is a giant blob of humanity with tons and tons of people. But most people kind of think of it as one huge single thing. And especially since I've gotten here, I've started to really understand that it is not a single thing. It is not a single group of people. And it's not even like there are a few different groups or there's just some differences because there's people live in slightly different places and cultures emerge differently, like Northern California and Southern California. That's not, that's not the core of the distinction. This is a huge multi-ethnic and I would think multinational country, right? And it's been fascinating to learn about as I've been here and learn about their geography and their history because I keep coming to this comparison and that is I keep thinking that, so ancient China, 
I think of very much as similar to the Roman Empire, okay? Which I don't think many people think about because in most people's minds, China is this huge country that has been a huge country forever and has been a single country forever. So many people would think about China in the same way that they think about England or France or even Russia. But it really isn't because in ancient times, if you go back to the Tang Dynasty, right, mm -hmm. which is going back pretty far, um, that's going back to about the first century BC. And if you go back there, what you would, will see is that you have this huge empire that conquered a lot of different countries, right? A lot of different peoples who spoke different languages, who had different foods, had different cultures. And they spread all the way down into Vietnam. And they spread all the way over through most of Korea and conquered much of Mongolia. And they very quickly, at this point, became this huge international empire. And this was, at the time, not at all one single country. Now, you might think that if they maintained that all the way up till today, that, oh, well, they became one country, right? Obviously, yes. Just as Latin, or during the Alexander's empire, Greek, spread throughout the whole, whole of the empire, and most people spoke, or not most people spoke Latin, but many people spoke Latin. It became the language of education. A lot of the local languages adopted a lot of the stuff. That is not the case for China. Mm -hmm. China consists of huge numbers of different, different people that speak very different languages and have very different cultures, and they were never really integrated into the single whole. And in part, that's because Chinese history mirrors European history much more than most people think. So China was not one huge country. Multiple different times, they broke up into smaller countries and started basically destroying each other, right? And these countries maintained very separate ethnic and kind of regional allegiances that were not to China as a whole. And China, as kind of we currently think about it, as a single nation, didn't f a single huge dominant nation for this whole region, didn't really exist until the Qing Dynasty in the 1600s. And even then, that kind of parallels what many European empires have. When you look at the Holy Roman Empire, or you look at you know, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, the Spanish Empire, they conquered all of these different places, but they didn't really make them a part of the same nation. Do you know what I mean? Right. So, backing up a little bit here, when did you first recognize this diversity? Like, w when did it strike um, you? Like, when were you like, whoa, this isn't just one singular country or culture? Right, so the first thing when it hit me, it hit me almost immediately getting here. Um, and not because I really had this full-fledged thought of China is this very diverse place, but because I lived in Korea before this, and Korea really is extraordinarily uniform. Yes. Very true. The Korean people tend to dress very similarly. They all have similar haircuts. And not, again, not all, but 98% of people right. you know, eat similar food. There, there are only a few options, you know what I mean? Right. You're getting beaten bop, you're getting barbecue, you're getting duck albi, you're not getting a lot of different stuff, and you're getting kimchi and rice at every meal. Right. I, right? I did visit you briefly, and I can totally attest to that. It was, it was very, yeah. much, very much like that. Everyone had the same haircuts, same clothing. The couples all acted very similarly. It was strange. True. The matching couples. Oh, yeah, my Lord. That was golden. I love it. I actually saw some here not too long ago. I guess they really? were visiting or something. And oh. they, were just, they were just there matching from head to toe. Same hat, same shirt, same jacket, same backpack, same shoes. It's, it's a treat. Everyone should go to Korea just to, just to follow those couples around. The things they do. It is deeply unfortunate. I mean, it's kind of entertaining, but at the same time, everyone that does that makes society a little bit worse. I love it. And no, I think it, it makes make society me happy. better. Because that's how deeply connected <sighs> Okay, I want to see you doing that, Mike. No, I'm Next not. time I'm in L.A., I want to see you and your girlfriend well, dressed exactly the same. I'm not like that, dude. Culturally, it just doesn't, it's not for me. That's their thing, dude. I can appreciate okay. them for who okay. they are. It's just not my thing. It's not what I do. But I love sure. seeing it. Okay. So yeah, Koreans were extremely conformist, and their society is relatively small, and so they tend to be very much the same. And, and they kind of pride themselves on being distinct from every other country and this whole hermit kingdom concept 
like it's been a thing for centuries that you know the Koreans think of themselves as separate and keep to themselves to, for the most part, right? But China is really big, and it's really different. And as soon as I got off the plane here, I started seeing people instead of everyone kind of dressed almost business casual, like all the guys are wearing a turtleneck and a scarf and a sports coat. Right. That that's how Korea really is. Most of the people are dressed a little bit too formally for whatever situation you're in, and it's kind of nicer clothing, but it's all the same, so it's very odd. But I got to China, and on the first day, I saw a whole bunch of people. Like there was just a whole bunch of guys all over the place. Who would just like wear ratty clothes and lift up their shirts and scratch their bellies all the time, right? Like, that's the kind of thing you would never see in Korea. Right. And at the same time, you see people and they're like dressed like Koreans would be dressed. And 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 you see wildly different haircuts, wildly different style in terms of how they're dressing. And and part of it is that I'm in the capital, and in Korea I wasn't in the capital. But even when I was in Seoul, they were very very uniform for the most part. And so, okay, so before before I came to China, I thought of it very much in the same way as I think about Korea. Back home, we always think about East Asian countries being more conformist, more uniform than the West, right? Like they are more they are more communal, they are less individualistic. Right. Um they are more, you know, they're more concerned about the community, about what other people think about them, right. things of that nature, right? And and Korea very much confirmed that in spades. And so I thought going to China that it would be the same. Right. And that it would be very much conformist, very uniform, and all of that. But it certainly was not. And and so at my first impression, my first time when I first got here last August, I was only here for five days, right? Mm-hmm. And so in that short period of time, I realized, okay, China is dramatically more diverse than Korea. Right. But I still didn't really think of it as being properly diverse, right? I just thought, okay, it's a bigger place. There's more different types of people. Right. right. See a little more diversity in a place that has more people. Yeah, it has more people. It has more different people. And Beijing has seen an influx of people uh, from all over the country for the last twenty years. So you're dealing with people from very far away, as opposed to Korea, where everyone is from pretty close to the capital. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's not a very large country. Um, but then when I came back here in October, and I started talking to people, and I started having students, and most of my students are business people, and most of them are from far-flung parts of China and they've moved to Beijing for whatever reason, right. right? And when I talked to these people, I started truly understanding the diversity in terms of language mm-hmm. because a lot of them talked about how places that they were from, a lot of people couldn't even understand pe- Mandarin, couldn't even understand people from Beijing. Right. Um, one of my students from Beijing said she would go to Sichuan down in the southwest and she would have more trouble talking to the locals there than she would have in America because she speaks decent English, right. right? Oh, that's wild. Right, and it's it's strange to think about that within one country, but if you go back just a little more than a century to the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, mm-hmm. and you look at them controlling most of the Balkans, controlling the Czech Republic, Austria, right. northern Italy, well, those are places that speak very different languages, and they're all held within the same country. Right. So our idea of kind of a nation and a country being the same thing is only is fairly recent, right? It, it derives from the nationalism of the 19th century that led into the nation state of the 20th century. Right. But this multinational empire is a thing that has existed forever, you know what I mean, since the Persian Empire, really. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, been a, it's, it's an idea that has been around. It only seems strange to us in our modern context. But it also seems strange because the way China presents itself, right? So the Chinese government and most Chinese people present themselves as one unified nation. I think that's why we think of them at that way, right? Because they present themselves as all being the same. They present themselves as all kind of believing the same things, all having the same values, when this is not remotely true. And most people here seem to think of the whole country as being, like, I guess, truly China, right? Like being a true part of China. But when you really start to look at it, there are a lot of layers to what I would think of as true China right. versus, I guess, new China or kind of frontier lands. Okay? okay. Essentially, they went through a series of expansions. Okay. They, it, up through the middle of the 1500s, the 1600s, they were still relatively confined. And only at that point did they start to really... I guess conquer what we think of as modern China. Mm-hmm. Because when you're talking about the Middle Ages in Europe, 
just as the Roman Empire fragmented into all of these small countries, right. so did Asia, so did uh, China. During the th at 300 to 450 AD is a period called the 16 Kingdoms period. And it's called that because you know there were 16 different Chinese kingdoms that were all going to war with each other all the time, right? Okay. Um, and when you look at you know the 800s, 900s AD, it's called the Five Dynasty and Ten Kingdom period at the end of the Tang Dynasty. And again, it's called this because it was not one unified nation. It was a declining empire that then again broke into these small, distinct parts that all fought each other for a long time. And that sounds a lot like medieval Europe. As the fall of the Roman Empire, you started to have these tribes, right. and you started to have these smaller, splintering locales that took power, because yeah. the huge international body had died. And so, throughout medieval China, you see a lot of this. And it was not really until the 1700s, or the late 1600s, that these things start to change, and some areas that are now controversial in China start to become a part of China. So when you're looking at the west of China, most people probably don't know the geography very well, but essentially there are half of China is made up of two controversial western provinces called Xinjiang and Tibet. Okay? So most people have heard of Tibet, and Tibet has very complicated history, we'll get to that in a minute. But Xinjiang was completely independent, a completely independent Turkic kingdom ruled by the Mongols, ruled by, you know, various other peoples, different khanates throughout time, until 1750, right? Mm -hmm. And in 1750, it was conquered by the Chinese. Well, think about what was happening in 1750. Think about the European countries. Think about col colonialization generally. For China to truly claim that this group of people who are ethnically distinct and linguistically distinct and culturally distinct in every way are truly Chinese, simply because they ruled them from 1750, well, in that way, the English could claim that Indians are English, you know what I mean? Right. Or the Dutch could claim that Indonesia is Dutch, you know? But they're not really. Like, they're distinct people. They're very different people. They've just been, you know, conquered and dominated since then. Right, well, and also they're much closer geographically to, like, actual Chinese people than those other countries are. True, but they're not, they're not that much closer, right? right? Because, for instance, the Spanish during a large portion of this period ruled the Dutch, right? They ruled the Netherlands. And I don't think anybody, even though the, the Netherlands and Spain are very close, I don't think anyone could claim that they are culturally, linguistically, or historically the same country, even if Spain still owned the Netherlands, right? right. Like, they are very distinct places. Very true. And even when you see places that have been unified for much, much longer, like you look at Ireland, or you look at Scotland under the English, well, those places still maintain distinct cultures, much less so than you would see in Xinjiang or, you know, the Netherlands or something like that. But they are still rather distinct to the extent that, you know, Scotland has been on the fence about breaking away from England for, you know, decades. And Ireland actually gave them the boot almost a century ago. And so... Like, like the, the, the key here is not so much how, they, how the Chinese present it right. or how the Chinese think about it, but the fact that no one in the West seems to realize this, that China is really a colonial power in this, in this instance. And that's not even to say that they should give up Xinjiang or something like right. that, but when we think about the Chinese and we think about China, we really should recognize that a place like this is very distinct. Okay? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we've also talked before about how we talk about the Dark Ages in Europe, right? Sure. And how despite the Dark Ages being like this thing we talk about and we focus mostly on the West, we don't look at the East. True, and yeah, do absolutely. do recall vaguely that while Europe is falling to pieces, Iran is, like, prospering. Sure, yeah, the... Uh, certainly the what is normally called the golden age of Islam. Um, and when you're talking about the, the huge caliphates right. that arose, you know, conquering all the way to Spain and conquering, you know, throughout the, the whole of the Middle East and Anatolia, those, yeah, those were during the Dark Ages, right? The Dark Ages in Europe and those, these warring periods in, you know, China that we, we just discussed. Right. So it's true that, that, you know, the Middle East was rising up and kind of unifying beneath this new ideology during that period. 
Right. And I'm, I'm just saying, because you talked about how we acknowledge these things here, as Westerners, about other Western countries. But, I mean, it's easy to forget that we are pretty, you know, centered on, on Western culture more than Eastern culture. So, I mean, we're, we're of course not going to acknowledge this occupation or conquering of, what was it, Xinjiang? Xinjiang. Xinjiang. Yeah, X-I-N-G-I-A-N-G. -G. Yeah. You're right that generally we would not be as focused on that as we would be on something in the West, right, or in Europe. Right. Because that is, in terms of our education and everything else, the context from which we form our lives, um, it's all focused on, you know, American, European, Western history, right? That being said, I think when you're talking about countries, to me there are two very distinct kinds of countries, okay? Mm -hmm. There are nation states and there are international empires or international countries, right? right? And when you look at Spain of the 15 and 1600s, when you look at England all the way up until the 1960s, when you look at France all the way up until the 1960s, you, you see these huge countries that have conquered these other places. I mean, again, you look at the German Empire, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire underneath the Tsars, or the USSR, for that matter, right? Like, these are international countries. Right. They are not a single nation. They hold different peoples. And th this distinction is very important because the way that a nation, a country that is only one nation, functions is very different than the way an international empire functions, right? right. Um, and the interesting thing when you're thinking about China is that China functions the way an ethnically centered nation functions. Right. They function in the same way that France might function, where the French have an idea of who the French are, what the French are. And from a religious standpoint, from an ethnic standpoint, and I mean, we could we could get into the whole you know discussion about why immigration and integration is so difficult in European countries. But one of the core pillars of why that is difficult is because they have this ethnic identity that is t closely tied to their national identity. Right. Right. China has this ethnic identity that's closely tied to their national identity. The problem is they simultaneously own and dominate these other lands that are not a part of that ethnic identity. For instance, when I talk to my students, they think of what they call Han Chinese, right? Which supposedly makes up something like 90% of the population, right? Um, I don't actually know how the, the percentages on this, mm -hmm. but a large portion of the population is Han Chinese. And they think of those people as like real Chinese, like those are Chinese people. And these Uyghurs who are out in Xinjiang, they're Muslim, they're Turkic people, they speak a different language, they eat different foods, they cover their, the women tend to cover their hair, things like that. Those people, they don't really think of as Chinese, but they certainly are Chinese, but they're not Han. So they have this ethnic identity, they have this, this national identity that excludes people who are within the country and are clearly a part of the country, right? right. And when I think about this, I think about, you know, when you're talking about minorities in the United States, when you talk about blacks and how a lot of blacks in the United States feel that they are not accepted or that they're not equal or that the identity of, you know, our country does not include them necessarily. Right. Think of that, but 10 times stronger because at least nominally, Americans are this melting pot. At least nominally, we think of ourselves as this very diverse place. But the Chinese don't even think of themselves as that. And so when you think of these tens of millions of people throughout the west of the country who are different peoples and speak different languages but are dominated by this national government, this very centralized national government in Beijing, you do start to think about how incredibly disenfranchised these people are. And I mean, the fact that they are extraordinarily poor and largely held out of the system because they can't even speak the language that the government speaks. Right and that the government broadcasts are in and all of that, that you would need to speak in a government job, you start to realize that, you know, like these people are probably some of the most oppressed minority groups around the world. I mean, they probably don't hold a candle to the Rohingya down in um, Myanmar, but like other than them, do you, do you see why this starts to 
be a very important distinction. Yes, I do. I can see how ignoring an entire group or multiple groups, because you're saying that Tibet and Xinjiang are just two countries that don't speak the same language, are ethnically considered different than what Chinese people are, yet they're still part of a government that does not represent them in any way. And Inner Mongolia, for that matter. Yeah. Um, Yes. So, because they are ethnically Mongolian, they speak Mongolian. Yeah. Okay. So um, then, then you have. Are there any other groups? So those are the three main ones that are not considered to be Han Chinese. But it's interesting because even when you look at Han Chinese and this whole concept of Han Chinese, I I question somewhat, because if you look at it from a physical standpoint, from an ethnic standpoint, mm-hmm. a lot of the southern Chinese did move down from central China. Mm-hmm. But many of them are from southern China, and they look very much like Vietnamese. And even when you listen to uh, some of the southern languages, like you listen to Cantonese, right, right? Um, down from Guangdong, and it's very different from Mandarin, and it is closer, I think, to uh, Vietnamese than it is to Mandarin. Um, And when you look at the way the northern Chinese look, they look a whole lot like Koreans. So when you think about them all being Han, that seems a bit strange to me. But besides that, like when you look at the main Han groups, mm-hmm. there are eight languages that more than 30 million people speak as their primary language, just in, within the Han. Uh-huh. And so when you look at how the uh, country broke down in that five dynasties, ten kingdoms period, right. and you see where these languages and these ethnic divides break down, you start to see that if this were Europe, a lot of that would kind of make sense in terms of dividing into different countries. Back before Germany unified into one country, you would see in Europe all of these different, relatively small areas that had their own ethnic and national and cultural distinction, for lack of a better word, right? And when you look at eastern China, you see you also have these areas with massive numbers of people that, while many of them maybe speak Mandarin also, they primarily speak other languages like Wu and Cantonese and Gan and Hakka and um, you know all of these different languages. So even within that, they are very diverse as a country. They are not really, I don't think of them as one nation, even in the core of China. They really are distinct nations there. But it becomes more problematic when you talk about these diff- disenfranchised peoples who have large secessionist movements throughout the west of China with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and, and Tibet. Um, not to mention uh, Taiwan, which is a whole other deal. Right. And, and so just, just to give some context to people about when these places were brought in, right? We already talked about Xinjiang. It got conquered by the Qing in 1750, right? right? When you look at uh, Tibet, right? Tibet was first taken by the Qing. It was first kind of uh, became a client state more than anything else where they had to kind of pay tribute and they had certain uh, dignitaries from the Chinese government along with some troops stationed in uh, Tibet in the 1600s. But then, uh, at the fall of the Qing, they became completely independent, right? They became completely independent all during the 1900s until Mao and his army came in in 1950 and reconquered them forcefully, Right. right? So they clearly wanted to be independent, they clearly became independent, and then this benevolent dictator, as they see him, um, came in and brought them back to heel, right, in a very uh, forceful way. And it's the same when you look at Taiwan is a very interesting thing, because Taiwan, since Europeans came out to Asia, Mm -hmm. it's been a part of China less than it has not been a part of China. Um, For instance, the Europeans were in Taiwan, the Spanish and the Portuguese, all throughout the 1600s until 1683, right? right? And then for about 200 years, the uh, the Ming, or sorry, the Qing um, controlled Taiwan. Okay, so they, they conquered, they went in, they conquered the local people, and they dominated uh, Taiwan, right? Mm-hmm. And then in 1895, the Japanese, you know, took it from the Chinese uh, through a treaty and controlled it through 1945. So Taiwan's always kind of been dominated, um, except since 1945, or since it's been independent. But when you look at this, for the last, you know, hundred and some odd years, since, you know, 1895, it's been an independent country for 120 years. And before that, it was only controlled by China for about 200 years. And then before that, it was completely independent. 
So when you when you look at the total history, the totality of the history of these uh, three different places, they really haven't been a part of this empire, as it were, for very long. And it makes sense that they would want to be distinct and independent. Uh, they would associate themselves separately from this country. Yeah. So, all right, quick question. Do you think yeah. the issues that arise with these disenfranchised countries being a part of China should be something that the world should talk about, should bring up, should put pressure on the Chinese to either incorporate them or find some way to give them more opportunities or let them go? Well, I, um, so I do think the Chinese are making efforts at incorporating them, but they're incorporating them in such a way that they're just dominating them more. For instance, a whole lot of Han Chinese have moved out to these regions in the last 20 years. And so they've, like the Chinese government looks at Tibet and they say, oh, well, we've invested a lot in Tibet, right? They've built railroads out there and right. stuff. And a lot of what that has done is it shipped a lot of Han Chinese into Tibet. And um, and it's allowed a lot of tourism, which, you know, a lot of people like tourism right. and things. And so, you know, maybe that's not such a bad thing. So now you have these large Han or Eastern Chinese kind of administrators who run all of the government in these areas and have a lot of the highest positions. So even companies that operate in these regions primarily want to hire non-locals in all of their high positions, right? right? And so to a certain extent, they're being integrated. So it's kind of like gentrifying an entire region. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's more like it establishing a, a quasi-caste system, right. right? Like it's 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 a lot of kind of what Europeans did in Africa, you know what right. I mean, where they would bring in a group of settlers who would kind of run domain and run and hold dominion over the locals, right? right? And so you have, as you kind of did with South Africa, you have this 10% of the population that kind of runs everything. And then 90% that can't really do anything and can't really, you know, survive or succeed in a very adequate manner. And yeah, so to answer the other question, yes, I do think that absolutely the world should be paying attention to this. It's hard to focus on it because it's a long-term thing that has not changed. Right. Like a lot of people can easily focus on things that have changed or things that have happened. Right. And that's why I think the Israeli conflict gets so much focus from so many people because it's something, you know, that's happened in the last 50, 60 years. It's not something that is grinding away for 100 years. Makes sense. At the same time, it is probably the biggest and most problematic political situation in the world, I would say. I mean, you now look at it and Latin America is largely at peace, mm -hmm. is relatively stable. Most of the wars throughout Africa have died down. Obviously, you have the Middle East, which is just, you know, in complete turmoil around Levant. But for the most part, in terms of stable governments, you don't have very much where one group is dominating another group. Again, you have the Israeli conflict, but that gets so incredibly focused on, and yet these other groups that are being systematically oppressed, is the only way I can really put it, are completely ignored. And I would, I would really like to hear your thoughts on this, Mike, but I have a lot of trouble understanding why countries cannot stand to let other countries go. And I've debated this with a lot of people, and it really flummoxes me because so England right mm -hmm. as the English Empire was in decline right or the British Empire right. as they call it they just kind of started letting things go as they started to realize they couldn't hold on to it and it wasn't really worth it right, right? so that's how India and Pakistan and you know Bangladesh all of them got released and that's how South Africa kind of got released and that's how you know a lot of these other Kenya all of that but the French in sharp contrast clung on very tightly to a lot of these things. Like Vietnam, the Vietnamese had to throw the French out before they would let go. Right. Algeria, they had this huge war in Algeria that forced them to give it up and let Algeria have independence, right? And most countries, that's exactly how it works. Like they will fight tooth and nail to hold on to something, even if it doesn't really offer them any value. And if you have all of this instability in, this, in these regions and they're causing a lot of problems, they're causing a lot of political turmoil, they're a drain on you economically. Right then I don't understand why a country like China wouldn't just let these areas go. Or for that matter, Taiwan, which is actually independent, and yet China still will not just let it go. Like, it doesn't actually 
affect them in any way, negatively. Because you said it yourself, they present this front of a unified China. What if they just started letting these regions that are ethnically different have independence? Would it be easier on them? Probably. But then they have less control over the region. Now those countries are free to, you know, ally themselves with other countries that aren't China. Because maybe they don't like the way China runs things. And ultimately creates probably more problems for them than they want. And so they'd rather spend a lot of money and waste a lot of resources forcing those places into submission so they don't have to deal with any repercussions later. It just seems very, very odd to me because, like, think about it. Like, these places don't have many people compared to China, right? Like, China's got more than a billion, you know? And these places, like, you look at Tibet, I think it's got, like, 8 million. Xinjiang has something like 15 million. You know, Inner Mongolia's got 24 million. So if you add all of it up, it's less than 1% of the total Chinese population for all three of these places. Now, granted, geographically, they're pretty big. But if you if if you were to tell me that Turkmenistan is really causing problems for China because it's this tiny little country off in Central Asia that has very few people and almost no money, I don't see that that would ever cause any kind of problem for them. You know what I mean? Right. And and so if you look at Xinjiang and they broke away, I don't see how that could actually cause any real problem for China, except for yeah maybe they ally with America or they ally with Russia and it allows them to get troops of these enemies closer to them. But, I mean, we have troops troops in Japan and troops in Korea. Like, I, I feel like you can't get much closer. Right. And really, all the stuff in the West matters much less than all of their stuff in the East. So, yeah, I, I don't know. It just seems... be a matter of pride. I mean, I don't really, obviously, know the history of China very much, but it could just be some grudge from the early, like, 10th century where, you know, they didn't forget about that time Xinjiang, like came in and like rampaged through China assuming that they ever had right I mean well certainly I could see this being a a thing with Tibet because Tibet actually had a really powerful empire for a lot of the middle ages Mm -hmm. and they came through and they conquered all the way almost up to Beijing and they like took a whole bunch of stuff and conquered a whole lot of central China and controlled it for like hundreds of years and stuff and so I I could see I could see with Tibet that being kind of a thing just like screw you people like yeah. At, at the same time, it just seems, I don't know, it just seems like it's so much trouble. Okay, for instance, like, generally this concept baffles me. Mm-hmm. Because if there's something highly valuable, like with England, or the UK, I should say, um, and Gibraltar, right? Like, I understand why they've clung on to Gibraltar. Because Gibraltar is an economically and politically and geopolitically important thing to hold access to the Mediterranean, right? right? So, sure, you hold on to Gibraltar. But China has all of these border disputes with India that causes major strife and has caused wars between China and India. Well, what exactly is the value of these completely depopulated areas in the middle of the Himalayas that they're clinging onto? I don't understand that at all. It's like, what possible actual value does it lend you? It lends you no value. Like, you get nothing from holding onto that except for a lot of conflict with India and maybe some dead people. Is it possible? that at some point China did control those regions. And again, it might just be a matter of pride. Maybe they're like, that was once a part of China and we want it back because we are a a united China and without that region, we are not complete. You know, it could be like a really, like just like a weird nationalistic pride that they have. They need to bring China together again. Well, I think that's a part of it, but because that's that's definitely at least a part of it. And I think that historically that's, always a part of it it's this you know for god and country kind of thing like yeah. for for our country right. we mean, want our country to be the biggest and the strongest and whatever world war ii um, is basically that we want a complete germany like, right we want to take it back to what it was before world war one yeah. right so i like i but that seems after world war ii that seems like just a a very silly thing to actually have be your thought process right. you know what i mean because I look out at the world and I see that it seems like almost all of the decision-making that most world leaders are doing is in order to achieve economic stability and growth of their population. That's, that seems to be the driving force of the 20th century and the 21st century, not so much military swashbuckling or what have you, right? Like they're not really trying to position themselves to be more powerful militarily than India by controlling this border well. Right. They're just... Like, like the, this whole thing of pride and all of that seems to have, to a large extent, died out 
in the last 70 years about this nationalistic pride that that is what matters and like we'll go to war because they offended our honor right like that can you imagine like the french insulting the english in some way and then the english go to war with them now no like that's not going to be a thing but i mean how many other strong countries near china can or do they want and they're fighting like france and the uk they're pretty strong militaries like it's not worth the hassle if if we're looking at china and they see tibet's there and tibet's the weakest they've ever been why not if they want to take these mountains here i i suppose india could could be pretty dangerous but my whole question yeah india india would be like india's got nukes yeah. you know like that's not an easy maybe they just hold different values it just seems so strange to me because i i when i look at all of these things i don't understand like i don't understand why nations do a lot of what they do when you look at things like this it's like well this doesn't actually hurt us in any way like like i said with the whole uh taiwan thing why exactly do you need everyone to accept that taiwan is a part of china like why is that a thing i'm i'm assuming it's because it used to be a part of china yeah but so did korea yeah but south korea is already so did vietnam you, you got me there it's very confusing to me yes. and i mean if you look at a lot of countries like if you look at certain regions right like if you look at eastern europe mm-hmm. throughout the middle ages and the renaissance all of the lands in eastern europe changed hands constantly right and some nations grew to be really big and then they shrunk and like at one point poland was this huge dominant country throughout eastern europe and at one point romania was really big and then albania was really big like different countries came through and were very powerful at different times right and none of them are like, oh, I should have all of those lands I once had, you know, 500 years ago when my country mattered. That's not a thing that people do anymore, at least in the West, because it's like when you look at things, you say, does this actually matter for my people? Does this actually have any impact? And if the answer is no, then you give it up for the most part, for the most part. Well, maybe China's in a different part of their history where they're still trying to grow and there's parts. And maybe it's not a lot because they've already gotten the things they want. But maybe there's mm. parts that they still want. You know, maybe they don't think South Korea yeah. is worth it because it'll just bring conflict with the U.S. But maybe Taiwan won't. Maybe they don't care enough about it. It just seems odd. I mean, it's the whole adversarial, and this is a topic for a whole another conversation, but like, it's the whole adversarial concept within how poli- geopolitics works, right? Like, I would say Europe is not demonstrably worse in any way now that they're all working together as a team than when they were all at each other's throats and about to go to war every two years, right? right? This this idea that geopolitics has to be confrontational, I think is very strange. And we've seen in many parts of the world that when countries don't have major conflict and they just generally are okay with each other and kind of nice and work together, mm-hmm. things go really well. When you look at North America, when you look at Europe, when you look at even Latin America to a slightly less, lesser extent, you see countries that are going to be peaceful with each other. They're going to be perfectly happy, um, at least for the last, you know, 50 some odd years. And they're going to generally try to work together. They're going to pursue their own interests, but they're not going to, you know, try to poke each other in the eye just because they want to poke each other in the eye. And I think that that is something that needs to come to Asia because Asia scares me a lot. But this is this is the whole conversation for another time. Yeah. So so I, I do think at the very least people should give more texture to the way they think about China. But there is a lot that people could know and that they should know. Not just about Chinese history, but about how China is today. Right. And I think it would be beneficial. Well, this is yeah. interesting because then it gives you a different perspective. Absolutely, yeah. Exactly what's happening. Because, I mean, I think most people would be under the impression that it is unified, that it's like one country with one ethnic group and everyone's yeah. contributing to the greater good. The greater good. Uh, yeah. Right, right. But, uh, I mean... <laughs> I mean, knowing that that's not necessarily true brings more attention to the regions that are being oppressed or disenfranchised or whatever. And I don't know. And it, it creates an opportunity, I think, Yeah. for those people. Because if it becomes public knowledge, then they'll have people who are fighting for them. Right. There would be much more pressure, right. which which is important. Yeah. And, and there's this narrative. The other thing is, you know, it would give more perspective to people in the West, um, and in particular, people in, in America, because, you know, th- there are these two narratives that run in the in the U.S. and in much of Europe that are essentially 
the big bad west always doing these terrible things to all these poor countries in the rest of the world and for a lot of time you know that was not incorrect and then the opposite side of that is oh these evil communists in china right mm -hmm. and neither of those appreciates the fact that while the west and the u.s might have deep deep flaws in terms of their policy and the lack of thoughtfulness with which they employ it that well a lot of these areas of Asia and these other groups outside of America and outside of the West are doing similar or much worse things in the same arena and are being completely ignored. Like people talk about how uh, terrible certain actions are in terms of the US being involved in other countries business, in terms of the US being involved um, in or even like race relations in the United States and things like that, right? right? Like and then you look at a place like China, and literally, if somebody from Xinjiang checks into a hotel in Beijing, the police come to question them about why they're in the country and why they're or why they're in the city and what they're doing here and all that. Wow. And and you know when you when you think about oh how terrible our government is or how terrible things are for us, like having a perspective about how things are for entirely different groups of people can sometimes give you some perspective that some of the things we're doing, not necessarily the worst thing in the world. And it's gotten a lot better, and it's much worse in certain other parts of right. the world. And, uh, I mean, at the very least, you could say things are getting better in the U.S. and Europe. Right. Well, and at least they're open and they're exposed right. and they're filtering through the conversation of, yeah. of the society. Yeah. Versus in China, where it doesn't seem like efforts are being made, have you noticed if there are any? I'd, I mean... I don't think there are any, but there's also no recourse for the population, right? There's no vote. Right. There's no impact on government at all. Like, there's nothing that they can do in any way, shape, or form. And there are no real human rights or rights of the citizen or protections for anyone. And so, yeah, no, not, not, not much seems to be done. Pretty yeah. interesting stuff. Definitely yeah, something. I think so. You know? Well, it's got me yeah. thinking, at least. Good, I'm glad. I'm glad, yeah, Mike. I genuinely had no idea. If you had told me... All those things that you thought about China being one big country where everyone's the same is true. I'd be like, of course it is. But now we know it isn't. Right, because, I mean, that matches everything we learn about it in history and everything we think about it for the most part as just, just the general way hmm. people in the U.S. approach China. Because it's the same way they approach Korea and it's the same way that they approach Japan. And those countries, it, it you know, it's fairly reflective of reality. Like, right. they're fairly well, I mean, they're cohesive. Much smaller more closed off in certain ways well true japan anyways very true from what i know of japan well one's an island one's a peninsula you know and and <laughs> like they're both cut off from the rest of the world by china yeah but even then they're distinct from china like they're very different culture oh yeah so i mean oh very different yeah but they're they are very similar throughout the country for the most part so i could i could see where people might see two of the most popular asian countries and go, oh, well, you know, they're all pretty much similar culturally. Why wouldn't China be similar culturally? So it's good It's good to know that, you know, it's not always true. Even the way people think about, like, the culture and the food and stuff and how they interface with it, right? People think about Japanese food, people think about Korean food, people think about Chinese food. Well, Chinese food is food from 20 different countries or 20 different nations within China, you know, that have completely different foods, completely different tastes, everything's completely different. All right, do you have any extremes? So Sichuan in the southwest, which is my favorite Chinese food. Their food tends to be kind of oily and kind of salty, like a lot of stuff is cooked in oil, and it is extremely spicy. All of their food is extremely spicy. So they do hot pot, they do a lot of things, like there's the, they do these dishes where you'll get chicken, right? Mm -hmm. And literally it'll just be like pieces of chicken breast, um, often with some bone in it somehow, cooked in like a thing of peppers. And these, there are these little chopped peppers that just completely engulf the chicken and bury the chicken. So you have to kind of like dig through the peppers to get to the chicken, that sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. They do these spicy potatoes, they do spicy, they do all sorts of really, really good spicy food. And when you compare that to like Guangdong food or uh, Guangzhou food, it's not spicy at all. It's more uh, creamy, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not creamy in like the European sense because they don't use like milk but it's it, it's definitely smoother, I guess I would say. I don't know exactly how to describe a lot of their food, but um, and even like when you look at the north, the north of China almost exclusively uses wheat, right, and noodles. They eat a lot of noodles, and they eat it, and the noodles are made from wheat. 
the south of China is all rice. There's n it's just rice for days, right? I mean, they still maybe have noodles, but it's rice noodles, not wheat noodles, oh, okay. right? Um, and those are very those are very distinct. Yes, it's um, a very different types of noodles. And when I say the north, I mean like Heilongjiang and the, the way north, like close to Russia. Yeah. So so the, the I mean it varies dramatically in different places. You know, it's it's not like like when you go to Korean food to get Korean food. Like if you go to Korea, you go to any city in Korea, they'll have the same food for the most part. Like there might be slightly different things, but it's pretty much the same. When you go to China, it's dramatically different everywhere. Do you have any so. final thoughts on China? I hope people will think about it and maybe look into uh, some of the interesting eccentricities of this country mm -hmm. and you know the diversity that lies. And within, possibly yeah. make efforts for Tibet and Xinjiang because I know there's. A lot yeah, of I mean, at least like tell some people yeah. about it. The more aware people are, the easier it is. I mean, because there are major separatist movements within those countries that are like heavily suppressed, right? Like. Xinjiang, there's been major terrorist attacks over the last few years where there was a knifing attack last year, I think, where these two guys, I think it was two guys, stabbed and killed like 60 or 70 people in a train station. And just people don't hear about it. And it, like this was with knives. Right. You know what I mean, like they, they got up close killing these people. That and so there, there's a, and in Tibet, people periodically, you know, burn themselves, right. even though the Dalai Lama has kind of asked them to stop doing that. So um, they're a bit more peaceful, but. Desperate and extreme measures. I mean, I, I, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that it has to tell us something, yeah. right? Like, yeah, there's there is some extreme distaste for the current situation within those areas, but that news doesn't get out because foreign reporters aren't let in, and obviously the news is heavily censored here. Yeah, it, it, it's not a good situation. People should at least look into it and try to understand, have a bit more context when they think about this country and how it works. Because if you don't like China, there are a whole lot of good reasons not to like China, beyond oh they're communist and Mao. And so, you know, brush up on those if you don't like China. If you do like China, well, you know, understand a little bit more of the complexities that are part of this country and that what you think of as Hong Kong and Guangdong are not, you know, all of what China is. There's a lot more to it. Yeah, all right. All right. So, so moving, moving on. on, yeah, yes, Mike? Jinx. Jinx. Yeah, you can jinx yeah, me fine. I'll be, I'll, I'll take that spell. Um, You're cursed now forever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, so in this last little section, we're just going to talk a little bit about what we've been up to recently. Mike, have you been reading anything lately? The Martian Chronicles. Yes. Oh, really? How is that? It is amazing. It is so good. It's it's just like a series of short stories by Ray Bradbury about Mars. Okay. He is a beautiful writer, man. I got ruined with Fahrenheit 451. I can't stand it. Really? Yeah, it's terrible. I in really my enjoyed it. I yeah. You should you should give it a try. You should read the Martian Chronicles. It's beautifully written. It has some really good stories in there that'll make you think, because it has a lot of okay. parallels to stuff that was happening then. You know. So it's a it's a sci-fi analysis of our current of uh, the of our actual society well, at right? the time. So yes. Like, yes. And even now, right, right. I mean, it, it, but it, but it, it applies. I mean, but it's being used as a critique as opposed to just sci-fi for sci-fi right. sake. Six. Yes. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. And it's very poetic too. I mean, I don't know if people know mm -hmm. that about him, but he is a beautiful writer. So you should just read a short story just just to get to experience it. Okay, I'll take I'll take a look at it. What um, about you, John? I'll put it I'll put it on the list. Yeah, so I've been reading The Second Machine Age, and I'm still plugging away at the uh, the House of Morgan, which is a long biography of the entire kind of family of J.P. Morgan. Mm -hmm. Him, his father, his son, a whole bunch of people. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting lens through to view uh, U.S. history through um, and financial history and all of that. Okay, and the second um, machine age. I've been age. focusing on the second machine age. Yeah, so it's it's a book that uh, came out a couple years ago, but it talks a lot about uh, technology and how technology may fundamentally change society and how society interacts and where technology is likely to take us. Um, and, it's, and it's interesting. You know, it's a lot of focus on AI, a lot of focus on uh, how computers and information technologies are still rippling through uh, society. Like the adoption. So, so for instance, when you think about the information things, right? right like computers as an individual thing mm -hmm. are impactful hugely, right. as we've of seen. Course. But computers as a thing that allows you to control everything else is a different level of importance, right? So when you go back and you think about like the elect electricity, right? Mm -hmm. um, the electric light bulb, huge. Yeah. But electricity as 
something that allows you to control hair dryers and vacuums and, you know, telephones and everything else, suddenly that electricity is much more important. And, and so, uh, so when he's talking about information technology, he's talking about information technology in of itself was hugely impactful already, but as it continues to filter through all of the other things in our society and all of the other objects and possessions and technologies and, and products that we have in our society, right. like cars, like you know, elevators, all of that, uh, that it's going to have a dramatic and much larger impact over the next couple decades. And so, yeah, I would suggest people read it. It's an interesting one, so it's, it's, it's not bad. I just actually finished Walkable City a little while ago, which you guys should definitely read. It's How Downtown Will Save America by, I think, David Speck, I want to say. Okay. Um, and God, it was good. It was, because walking, for those of you don't, that don't know, is wonderful for life. And living in a place where you can walk just about everywhere you need to go is wonderful for life. And he basically lays out there this whole platform for how we should remake our cities in order to make them more walkable and how they are being remade and how cities that do not follow these trends and do not make themselves walkable cities and attractive to those who want to lead this lifestyle, which is generally people of our generation, are going to suffer, struggle, shrink, and die. And so, yeah, we should pay attention to it. It's really good. Go pick up that book, Walkable City. Yes. It's, it's good stuff. And walk more. Um, yeah. Just because. And walk yeah. more, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it makes you think better. And who is the second machine age by? Uh, that's a good question. Um, Anonymous. Oh, sorry. It was Jeff Speck, by the way. It was Jeff Speck. Jeff Speck. Ah, that was Walkable City. Yeah, yeah, that's Walkable City. Uh, let me check. Let me go find the book. Hold on. Yeah. This is what we're dealing with, people. Amateur stuff. Amateur stuff. You're hearing my dog running around in the background, getting interrupted. I mean, we're amateurs, but you're loving it, or you will. Okay, the second machine age is by Eric. Oh, Eric Brinjolfson. <laughs> Eric. Eric Brinjolfson. Johnson. Oh, Brinjolfson. Brinjolfson. With an L. And Andrew McAfee. And Andrew McAfee. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty good. What have you been studying? Like, you been up to anything? What have you been learning? How are your classes going? All Let's that. See. Ooh, pretty well. I. Failed a math class, but fret not. I'm gonna I'm gonna get on some Khan Academy and improve my my stats skills. So this next semester I'll be ready to crush it. And let's see. Besides that, um, now and again I I've been studying a little bit of Excel just just because I feel like it's a really useful program that makes life easier. It's a useful tool to yeah. have. And so yeah. yeah, why not? Definitely worth doing. Mm -hmm. And good, um, good, good. been doing a lot of writing. I don't know if that counts. Yeah. I think it yeah, does. Yeah. It's developing. Yeah, yeah. Just to improve my communication skills. Cool. Yeah. How about you, John? Yeah, I mean, I've been so I've been studying Spanish for about a year. It's actually a year in one week. Mm -hmm. So I'm almost uh, at the one year mark. I'm really excited about that milestone. Congratulations. Thank you. I remember when you first tried learning Spanish. It was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Did not. Did not yeah, last didn't go, very long. Didn't go as well. No, huh? So now you're. No, well, because there I was trying to, okay, when I first started, I was trying to figure out the tools and methodology for learning a language, right? And I was just using Spanish as a testing ground. Mm -hmm. This time, I've fully utilized those tools, and I have developed a very clear and effective methodology, and I think I speak pretty well now. I've been reading articles all the time. Um, I've learned a lot. I've made over 5,000 flashcards, and I know several thousand words and a lot of grammar and yeah so I'll have to demonstrate that for all of you at some point but not right now and I currently run a blog I guess I guess you would call it a blog it's, it's more than a blog but we're working on kind of redirecting and refocusing what our direction is I guess Who's uh, and John? it's called NTL critical it's Jess and I yeah she's my partner yeah. um, in this blog and it's she's a real solid person really driving me all the time um, she just finished traveling through Asia for seven months, something like that, farming in a bunch of different places. So we talk about that. We talk about skill development. We talk about a lot of learning, different kinds of jobs and alternative lifestyles that you can get into and how to you know, go live a life like me where you're living in Korea, you're living in China, you're doing different things, different places, um, or live like her where you're farming in Vietnam and Cambodia. Yeah, um, so we talk about a lot of different stuff. Mm -hmm. What? Oh, I'm just saying this yeah. is a plug ladies and gentlemen, for, for all you wondering. 
<laughs> yeah, you guys should check it out. It, we do talk about some very interesting things. So, you know, if you want to learn how to uh, do things better, go ahead and give it a go. It's Michael certified. Yeah. It doesn't mean much. Also, I just got to 200 pounds, finally, for the first time in forever. He's losing um, weight. I'm now time. under 200 pounds, yeah. Congratulations on that I've one, been, too. Thank you. It's taken me a few months. Yeah. And uh, hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll be losing a little bit more according to my plan before I leave China next month. I'm going to start doing exercises, push-ups, really? sit-ups, pull-ups, yep, and then next week I'll How? come in and I'll show you, I'll tell you guys about my <laughs> progress, yeah, it's going to be fun. Yeah? Yeah. How often are you going to do that? Are you going to do it once this week or I'm gonna every try, day? I'm going to do it daily, man. If I don't, I'm, I'm never going to get the habit, so... Every day. Okay. Yes. I'm excited to hear about how that goes. Yeah. All right, man. I'll let you know where I start and where I'll end. Yeah. yeah. You want to wrap it up? Yeah. How, 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 are we, how are we saying bye to these folks? I'm not saying bye to those folks. I'm saying bye to you. Oh, that's true. You're welcome, John. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike. I'll see you next week. All right. Bye. Screw that dog. Yeah, that's what I said.